morning, church. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible, please do me a favor, open it to John chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. And if you, if you do not have a Bible, you can find one on the seat back in front of you. And you can find, oh, thank you. Kids are dismissed. Man, I knew I was going to forget that. Keanu, my man, coming in clutch. Thank you. And they were back there waving their hands and everything, um, which is actually fitting because today we're going to read a story in the gospel according to John about a group of people that missed something that seemed very clear to others. Uh, so we're going to find our, our passage. If you grab one of those Bibles on the seat in front of you, you can find it on page 891. Uh, so a few weeks ago, some unexpected guests arrived at our house. They didn't take up a lot of room. They didn't eat too much. But still, they were possibly one of the most frustrating forces that have ever darkened our doors. They were mice. And we had quite enough of them eating all of our graham crackers and, and using the bathroom literally everywhere. And so we bought traps. And I probably went a little overboard. I bought about 30 of them. And I put them literally in every corner of my house that our baby can't reach them. And one of those traps happens to be on the floor in the bathroom. And so one night, I walk in to the bathroom, and I start to brush my teeth, and I just happen to glance down, and there's a dead mouse. And I jumped about 40,000 feet in the air at that moment. My heart was beating, I think, somewhere between 2,700 and 4,500 beats per minute because it was just so terrifying to see a dead mouse. Even though it's exactly what I was expecting, even though, honestly, it's exactly what I was hoping to find, it was still absolutely jarring and completely shocking. And I think the reason that things like that scare us, well, first of all, things like that scare me because I'm a little bit of a wimp. But I think that, moreover, things like that scare us because death is something that's profoundly unnatural. Death is something that's profoundly unnatural. It's not the way that this world is supposed to be. I think that something similar happens whenever we go to an open casket funeral, where no matter how hard you try, you can't take your eyes off of the deceased. And I think even something similar happens quite frequently in our age of social media. Whenever we hear a news story about a celebrity dying, we just can't believe it. And we, we stare at the screen and we read the headline over and over and over again because we just can't fathom that this person is no longer living. Because death is something that's profoundly unnatural. And when I say that death is unnatural, I don't just mean that it's something that's kind of weird or scary. I mean that it's unnatural in the sense that it's not the way this world was supposed to function. This world wasn't supposed to be cursed by death. God's original design for humanity is that we would live forever. And, and that was how he created our first parents, Adam and Eve. He created them to live forever, but he told them that if they disobeyed his commands, they would be cursed with death. And that's exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve ate forbidden fruit. They were cursed with death. They were sent away from God's presence, and God cursed them with death. 
While it wasn't his original design for humanity, it was always his plan. And, and so cursing Adam and Eve and all of the earth with death, God, God's giving strong words, and in the middle of that curse, he makes a promise that a son would come from their line who would deliver them from the curse of death forever. And over the last few months, as we've been studying the gospel according to John, we've been meeting that long-awaited promised son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not just as a good teacher or a convincing prophet, but as a savior to redeem us from the curse of death. That's the main idea that I want to drive home to you this morning as we study the gospel according to John chapter 6, that only Christ can bring us eternal life. Only Christ can bring us eternal life. We're going to see that truth come to light as we walk through an interesting conversation that Christ has with a crowd of people that have been observing and consuming his teaching. And he's going to take this crowd, no matter how hard he tries, they don't understand what he's trying to communicate to them, uh, but he's going to communicate to them four truths about eternal life. He's going to extend to them an invitation to eternal life. He's going to offer an explanation of eternal life. He's going to describe the exclusivity of eternal life. And then he's going to invite a response to eternal life. So that's where we'll be this morning in John chapter 6. But before we dive in, I just want to devote this time to the Lord and pray once again. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to understand your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to behold your glory and that we would fall in love with you freshly. God, I pray that we would be amazed by your grace. I pray that we would be amazed by your glory. I pray that you would give me wisdom to say the right words. I pray that you would give all of us wisdom to hear your words, to apply them to our lives, and to leave this place forever changed. God, I pray that you would glorify your son. Would you do it for your name's sake? And it's for that name that we pray. Amen. So first of all, an invitation to eternal life. And what we'll see here is that God offers us a free gift of eternal life through his son. Now before we dive into this conversation that Christ has with the crowd, it's important that we take a step back and look at the context that we find this story in. We'll start reading in John chapter 6, verse 25. But in the first 24 verses of the chapter, we see Christ perform two astounding miracles that lay a foundation for his conversation with the crowd later on in the chapter. The first of those miracles is quite possibly one of Jesus' most famous miracles, where after a long day of teaching the crowd, he takes five loaves of bread and two fish, he multiplies them and feeds the crowd. Now that's amazing. That would be like going to a Washington Capitals game before the coronavirus shut things like that down and having a handful of fish sandwiches and using that to feed the entire packed stadium. That would be pretty amazing. And if someone was able to do that with a handful of fish sandwiches, I think a lot of us would be willing to follow that guy anywhere. And so that's what Christ did in that miracle. The crowd is amazed. And so from that point, Christ sends his disciples on to the other side of the sea. And he says, I'll meet up with you guys later. He disperses the crowds. He spends some time alone 
praying. And in the middle of the night, as the disciples are sailing across the sea, a great storm strikes and the waves are crashing against the boat. The thunder is rumbling in their ears. The wind is blowing them. The, the ship is starting to sink. And the, the disciples are freaking out. And then they look up and over the waves they see a figure walking on the water. And it's Christ. He's walking on the water. The waves cannot bowl him over. The wind cannot take him down. The thunder does not cause him to back down because he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's simply walking over the water with perfect balance and grace. And then he gets in the boat and he brings his disciples safely across. And both of those stories lay an important foundation for what we'll read about in the rest of John chapter 6 because they show us that Christ is not merely a good teacher, but that he is God himself. He is the almighty Lord. And so we pick up the story in John chapter 6, verse 25. The crowd having woken up, they look for Jesus again. They want to hear this astounding truth uh, again. They want to see more incredible miracles. But when they look for him, he's nowhere to be found. Now, they know that he didn't get in a boat, so they're not sure where he could have gone. But, but looking for him, they, they travel across the sea themselves, and they finally find him. John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So the crowd's looking for Jesus. Always a good thing, right? Well, not exactly, because Christ actually rebukes them for searching him out because they're doing so with a wrong motivation. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Christ exposes their motivation. He's saying, you're not looking for me because you saw the signs that I did and now you believe that I am the promised Savior. You're looking for me because I gave you a snack and you want some more of it. So Christ exposes their motivations and then he goes on to raise their expectations. In verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to them, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Christ makes a bold claim there. He's claiming that he can give the crowd something better than all the bread in the world, eternal life. He's claiming that he doesn't just have the remedy for their hunger, he has the remedy for their death. And now the crowd is obviously interested. And so they ask Christ, well, do you have this incredible bread that will make me live forever? How can I get it? What must I do to get this gift from God? And he continues, and he explains that this is the work of God, verse 29, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So he responds to their astonishment with another, even bolder, claim where he says that the only path to eternal life is trusting in himself, trusting in Christ. Now, if somebody came in here this morning and said that they could bring you to eternal life and make you live forever, we would probably respond in a similar way to the crowd, and we would ask for an evidence. That's what the crowd does in verse 30. They say, then what sign do you do? What miracle will you perform? How will you show us your authority? And they ask for a particular kind of sign. They ask for bread. Regardless, I guess they're just throwing aside the fact that Christ had already given them bread yesterday, miraculously. But they're calling his mind to something in the Old Testament, the miracle of manna. In Exodus chapter 16, God performed an astounding miracle and gave an incredible blessing to his people. He gave them a gift of bread. So after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, God's people were wandering through the desert and they were getting kind of hungry. Many of them started to complain, well, if this is how life is going to be out here, it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Because even though we were slaves that were being cruelly treated and abused, at least we had a pantry. And God, God in his grace, gives his people what they need even though they don't deserve it. He gives them bread that rains down from heaven, and they call it manna. And so every morning, besides the Sabbath, which was a day of rest, God's people would get up and they would gather this bread from the ground. Bread came from heaven, they collected it, and it gave them life. It kept them from dying. And so here, the crowd is asking Christ, well, if you really are such a great prophet, why don't you just give us bread like Moses did? And Christ said, hold up. Moses did not give you that bread. God gave you that bread. And if I give you bread, Christ says, it's not because I'm a great teacher or a great prophet like Moses. If I'm able to give you bread, Christ says, it's because I am the living God. He explains in verse 32 and 33 as he's responding to their request for manna. He says that he's both like the manna and he's unlike the manna. He gets, a, he gets into that theme again in verses 57 and 58. Let me read that to you. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Christ is like the manna in the sense that he came down from heaven to give life to God's people. And he is unlike the manna in the sense that the life that he gives doesn't just last for a day, but it lasts for forever. He's offering an invitation to eternal life, to believe in him and receive something better than all the bread that this world has to offer. He's inviting the crowds to raise their expectations. And as we read this text and discover this same invitation to eternal life, we have a similar invitation before us to raise our expectations, to stop striving for food that perishes, to stop living for things like our careers, or our power, or respect, or money, or fun, or sexual fulfillment. Christ is inviting the crowds and inviting us to respond to an invitation to eternal life. 
by believing in him. Now, is it really that simple? Is that all it takes to believe in Christ and then we're saved, sealed to live forever? Well, he goes on and gives an explanation of eternal life in verses 34 to 46. What we see here is that from beginning to end, our salvation is a work of God alone. So let's pick it up in verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So they want the bread that will make them live forever. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Christ reiterates the same truth that he's been teaching all along, that he is on a mission to save anyone who would believe in him from the curse of death, to give them eternal life. Where did he get this mission? Is it just something that he invented in his own mind? No, it's something that the Father gave to him. This has been a crucial theme in John's gospel, so it's worth revisiting here. We believe that God is Trinity. We believe that there is one God who has always existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of those persons is equal in power, equal in dignity, equal in, in glory and blessing and honor and praise. But in their work to create and preserve and rule and save the world, they lovingly and humbly submit to one another and take on particular roles. So the Son submits to the Father in love and humility, not because the Son is inferior to the Father, because the Son and the Father are both fully God. And the Father lovingly sends the Son, not because the Son is inferior or the Father is greater, but to accomplish their plan of redemption, their plan to save a people for himself. And that's what Christ is getting at here when he talks about the Father giving a people to him, when he talks about doing the will of his Father or the will of him who sent me. He's talking about his role in the work of redemption as God the Son. And so hearing him talk about God as the Father, hearing Christ talk about himself as bread coming down from heaven, the crowd once again responds with an objection. Let's pick it up in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now, their objection makes a lot of sense. What they're saying is, well, we know your dad. You didn't come from heaven. We know where you came from. You came from Nazareth. You didn't come from heaven. And Christ responds to their, their uh, objection in an interesting way. 
He doesn't explain the Trinity to them like I just did to you, like we already saw in John chapter 1, like we'll see again in John chapters 14 through 17. He doesn't explain any of that to them. He just, he, he gives a startling reality about how God works to save a people for himself. Jesus answered them, verse 43, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. So Christ is teaching a startling reality here, that the Father has chosen and called a particular people for himself out of sin and death. We see this in verse 37, where he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father is giving a people to the Son. We see it in verse 44, where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father sent the Son as a part of their work to save some. Not everyone will believe in Christ. Only those who the Father has given life and faith to will believe in the Son. So the, the reality behind this is that before the foundation of the world, God launched a plan to save a people for himself from sin and death. He chose a particular people that he would save and redeem. We see this all throughout the New Testament, especially in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just read to you two verses from there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This was owing to nothing good in us. It was simply out of God's perfect wisdom and love that he chose to save people for himself. And the reason that this is necessary is because when Adam and Eve sinned, humanity wasn't just cursed with death. No, all of our existence was put under a curse. Our hearts were cursed so we don't love the right things. Our will was cursed so that we don't do the right things. Our tongue was cursed so we don't say the right things. Our minds were cursed so we don't believe the right things. All of us was cursed. And so there was no chance whatsoever that any of us would have come to faith in Christ unless if God supernaturally intervened. And the good news, friends, is that he has. The good news is that God from eternity past set his affections on you. From eternity past made a plan to save you in particular. Not just to extend an offer, but to extend salvation and bring his children home. Now, this is humbling because it means that if you have saving faith, that faith has nothing to do with how good or smart or reasonable you are. It's a gift from God. All that the Father gives to Christ come to him. You're a gift. You didn't weasel your way in there. It's not something that you did for yourself by being faithful enough or smart enough 
to reason it out. Anyone who comes, comes because God draws them. And then he goes even further than that. And Christ goes on to explain that God didn't just choose people and then wring his hands hoping that they would come home at some point. No, he chose a people for himself and then decidedly acted within history to save that people for himself, to draw them to himself. He chose a people and then he acted for that people. We see that in verse 45. Jesus says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Christianity is not ultimately about a choice we make. It's about a gift from God. We call this God's sovereignty, which means that all of his purposes will surely come about because he is powerful, and because he holds all authority. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. All of God is sovereign, including his grace. Nothing could stop God from saving rebels like me and rebels like you because he had chosen you, because he had determined to save you. And it gets even better than that. We read in verse 36, and, and several times Christ keeps repeating this. He talks about, and I will raise him up on the last day. So everyone that the Father chooses will come to faith in Christ. And all of those people that the Father has chosen who come to Christ will, in fact, be raised up on the last day. God will never cast you away. You can never out the grace of God. God is sovereignly working in your hearts if you are a Christian to keep you in the faith. Faith is not something that we simply muster up and white knuckle our way to really believe no matter what the world tells us. No, you became a Christian by grace. You remain a Christian by grace. And one day your faith will be completed by grace and grace alone. If God did not intervene and if God did not keep intervening, none of us would have come to faith and none of us would have remained in the faith. This means that Christianity has no good news for the self-confident because the center of our faith is about admitting that we have nothing good to offer God. The center of our faith is about believing that God has to intervene if our hearts are going to be changed. We read earlier in John's gospel in chapter 3, the need to be born again. And that's the same reality that Christ is talking about here. You will never come to Christ with your old heart, so God needs to intervene, give you a new birth and a new heart in order for you to come to him. Christianity is not for the self-confident because the demand of Christ is that we lay ourselves empty-handed at the foot of the cross and at the mouth of the empty tomb and believing that that is our only hope. We have nothing good in us to extort favor from God. We have nothing faithful in us to, to warrant God's everlasting love. He chose us in love for his plan of redemption. Now this means, if you're a more logical person, you might already be thinking about this. If all that the Father chooses will come to faith, 
and will be saved, that means that the Father has not chosen everyone. Is that unjust or unfair? Well, no, I don't think so. Because the bad news is that none of us deserve this redemption. It's not something we're entitled to. It's something that God has given to us in mercy, not fairness. If God was controlled by fairness in all of his actions, what would be fair would be for all of us to be condemned to hell forever because that's how great our crimes have been against the high king of heaven. We don't deserve to go to heaven. It's not something that's owed to us. And so we, don't, we shouldn't be astonished at the fact that there's any who wouldn't be saved. We should be astonished by the truth that we are. We should be astonished by the fact that God has shown us mercy in power. This is our only hope for evangelism. Our only hope for evangelism is that the God who was mighty enough to change our wicked hearts will be mighty enough to change the hearts of the people that we share with. Our hope in evangelism is that as we share, God will certainly call his people home. And that's good news. But this also means that for those of us here today, there are no accidents. We do not believe that any of you are here today by accident. We believe that the God who controls all things in the universe specifically brought you here specifically this morning to specifically hear this word. And that means that there are people here, I believe, that God is calling to himself to repent and believe, maybe for the first time. And what an astounding reality that could be. Friends, if you have not put your faith in Christ, then understand he is calling to you right now. He's inviting you to respond to this invitation of eternal life. Now, what an astounding reality that from beginning to end, our salvation is a work of God alone. But it also comes at a very high cost. And that's where we see the exclusivity of eternal life. Believing in Christ is not a way to eternal life. It is the only way to eternal life. Life. We have no hope apart from Christ. And why is that? That's what Christ explains in verses 47 to 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So again, he's extending to them this invitation. If you believe in the bread of life, the risen Lord Jesus, you can be saved. But then he goes on. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. 
not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now these are a loaded couple of verses. We could spend weeks and weeks and months and months just staring at them. But there's one thing in particular, well, a few things in particular that I want to point out to you. But before we get there, I just need to take a step back and correct a common misinterpretation about this passage. Many people who claim the name of Christ have interpreted this passage to be talking about the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And and those people believe that in the Lord's Supper, a miracle takes place where the natural elements of the bread and the wine are substantially transformed so that they really become the body and the blood of Christ. Now, I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. I don't think that's what Christ is describing. I'm going to give you one reason why I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. And if that reason doesn't convince you, I've got a lot more. I'd love to talk about this with you. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So if you have more questions about this, then please Come to me afterwards, and I'd love to talk more. But I just want to show one detail about the text that makes me think that's not, what, that's not what's going on here. Compare what Christ says in verses 47 and verse 54. In both of those verses, Christ makes universal statements with no qualifications. Both of those statements take the same format. Whoever blanks has eternal life. Because neither of those statements have qualifications, they have to be referring to the same thing, or neither one of them is true. So verse 47 says, whoever believes has eternal life. And verse 54 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So both of these verses take the same format. Neither one offer any conditions. So I think that what's happening is that in verse 54, Christ is saying the same thing in a metaphorical way. He's saying that whoever believes in him has eternal life. And because the way that we're saved is by looking to Christ's broken body and shed blood, that really is like eating his, bre- eating his body and drinking his blood. It would be like if your boss said to you at work on a Friday afternoon, the only thing I need you to do before you leave is submit the report. So you go to work on that, and then five minutes later, your boss comes to you and he says, the only thing I need to do, the only thing I need you to do before you leave is send the email. Now, if those are talking about two different tasks, then neither one of your boss's statements are true because neither one of them could be the only thing you have to do because there are two things you have to do. Submit the report and send the email. But your boss might be talking about the same task using two different words. He might be telling you to submit the report via email. He's talking about one thing, and I think that's exactly what's going on here. Christ is saying whoever believes has eternal life. And then he uses this incredible image about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, not to point to the Lord's Supper, but rather to point to the way in which we are saved, which is in looking to Christ's broken body and shed blood. Christ lived a perfect life that you and I have not lived. And Christ died a painful, excruciating, humiliating, public death 
where he was punished by God the Father, not for his crimes, because he had none, but for our crimes, for your crimes. And then God raised him up from the dead. He, he conquered death. He threw death into his own empty tomb. And he said, you can't come out of there anymore because I'm going to save this people for myself. That's what Christ has done for us. He rose from the dead to defeat death forever. And the way that that resurrection life is applied to us is by looking to his broken body and shed blood. By believing that his goodness is better than our goodness. By believing that he paid the price and penalty for our crimes. By trusting in him. We just sang Jesus Messiah. And one of the words in that song is taken from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Which says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our life is found not in being good enough or religious enough but in trusting in Christ alone. But trusting Christ is more than just a mental assent to a list of facts. Trusting in Christ is not just in name only. So if I, if I pointed to one of the chairs on the stage and I said, I really trust that chair to hold me up. I trust that chair with all of my heart. And then you said to me, well, you know, you've been standing up for a while. Why don't you go sit down on that chair? If I responded to you by saying, I'm not really going to sit in that chair because it might break and I might fall and get hurt. So I'm just, I'm not going to sit in that chair, but I really trust it, guys. Trust me. No, I don't trust that chair. I'm saying that I trust that chair, but I don't trust in it. And the same is true about Christ. There are a lot of people who say that they trust in Christ and he has made absolutely no impact on their life. Trusting in Jesus is not something that you say with your mouth alone. Trusting in Jesus is something that you do with your entire life. So if you say that you trust Jesus, but you spend your life striving after the food that perishes in the world, you don't trust Jesus. He's not your treasure. You just might do some religious activities. If you say that you trust Jesus, but refuse to obey his word, you don't trust Jesus. You don't even believe that he knows the path to the fullness of life. You don't trust Jesus. You just say that you do. If you say that you trust Jesus, but you determine right and wrong by looking at what you feel or by looking at what the world defines as right and good, you don't trust in Jesus. You just trust your own heart. Christ is inviting us to trust in him fully, and that transforms our life. Let me say it again. Trusting in Jesus is not something that you say with your lips only. Trusting in Jesus is something that you do with every inch of your life. We all need to trust in Christ and be saved. He is the only path. There are not many paths to God. There is one path, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are only saved with personal, explicit faith in him. And that leads us to our final point, the response to eternal life. Some believe and find a life. Some reject. Let's pick it up in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So what Christ is doing there is he's pointing out the fact that you're not upset about eating bodies and drinking blood. You're upset at the fact that I just claimed that I'm the only path to life because I'm God. And one day you're going to see it. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will be seated on the highest throne. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will demand that every knee bow before him and that every tongue sing his praise. You will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can do it today with joy or you can do it then in fear at his impending wrath. And I want to invite you to do it today. The Son of Man will ascend to where he was before. He is already already seated on the throne, ruling and reigning over all the earth. Will you submit to him as your king? Will you come to him as your greatest treasure? Will you confess that he's the only path to meaning in this life? Will you stop striving for the food that perishes and find eternal life in the Son of God? But Christ doesn't plead with the crowd. He lets them go because he knows that only God can save them. Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But those, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There are many Christians who are trying to hedge their bets. They'll say, well, maybe I'll do enough religious activities to be good with God, but I'm not going to renounce my life in this world. I'm not going to renounce the opportunities to be loved and respected by this world because what if this is the only life I have? I don't want to waste it serving a God who might not even be real. And that's not an option for followers of Christ. Christ demands complete allegiance and that's what the disciples do. As the crowds are walking away, Peter and the other disciples would know that things would go a lot easier for them if they were to walk away as well. But that's not what they do. They say, Lord, there is no other option. There's nowhere else I could go because you alone have the words of eternal life. So friends, flee to Jesus and be free from death. Are you afraid of death? If you're not in Christ, you should be. Because we have all sinned and we are all under a curse. We all need to repent and believe in Christ you may have not come here with a plan to become a Christian, but maybe that's what God is doing in your heart right now. Wouldn't that be astounding that you came in here to attend a church service and you left having escaped death forever? And if that's the truth, if you're feeling in your heart that you're not a Christian and you'd like to become one or you want to learn more, then there's going to be some people in the back of the room as soon as we're done here when the music starts back up and they're going to be 
ready to pray for you. I'm going to be back there. There's going to be some other people. We would love to pray with you and talk more with you about what it means to trust in Christ, to become a Christian, to escape death. And Christians, keep trusting. You don't graduate from grace. Christ's grace, cross, empty tomb, and resurrection is not the beginning of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Our only hope is faith in Christ. He is always our life. He is always our bread. God started this work of salvation. God is continuing this work of salvation. And God will finish this work of salvation. So continue to treasure him in faith, believing that he's better than anything the world has to offer. Continue to obey him in faith, believing that his words lead to life. Continue to cling to him in faith, believing that he is your only hope and the only escape from death because only Christ can bring us eternal life. If you want to learn more about what it means to trust and treasure Christ, please come and talk to us in the back. And if you're a Christian and you're realizing that, that the Lord's laying things on your heart that you need to confess, that you haven't surrendered to his lordship, then please come to the back. We would love to pray with you about that as well. But now we're going to pray, and then the band is going to continue to lead us in singing. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you reign with power over all the earth. And God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for people in this room. I pray that you would raise some to everlasting life. And I pray that you would build up an army of laborers, members of Pillar DC, who would share their faith boldly with their neighbors because we know that you alone have the words of eternal life. God, I pray that you would remove any obstacles that keep us from faith for the first time or growing in faith. I pray that you would help us to trust you fully, even if we don't understand fully. God, I pray that we would not just confess faith with our mouths, but that we would live it with our lives. I pray, Father, that we would trust in you. I praise you, God, that your son is risen and reigning and ruling and seated on high. I pray that he would come back soon to judge the living and the dead. And I pray that no one here would be caught unawares on that day. It's for your name we pray. Amen.